I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. I am now pleased to introduce Eve Ensler, Tony Award-winning playwright of the Vagina Monologues and author of the new book, The Apology. Eve's theatrical career took off when she wrote The Vagina Monologues, a work of such originality and power that it ran for over 10 years and has been translated into 48 languages and performed in more than 140 countries. Eve also founded V-Day, a global platform to end violence against women and girls, and she founded One Billion Rising. The largest global mass action to end gender-based violence in over 200 countries. Eve's latest book, The Apology, is a powerful and personal life-changing examination of abuse and atonement. Her book is a raw reckoning with a traumatic and unresolved past, which played an important role in Eve's artistic and political activist careers. It also shows other survivors of abuse how they may finally envision their own freedom from the past. Welcome, Eve. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start, Eve. Tell us a bit about why you wrote this book. Well, first of all, why did I write this book? I've been in so many cities in so many days. My mind is just (laughs) like... um, Well, I think there were a combination of factors why I wrote this book. One, I was sexually abused by my father from the time I was five until the time I was ten. And after that, um, he began to physically abuse me in kind of horrendous and scary ways, almost murdering me a couple of times. And I think all my childhood, I dreamed that my father would apologize to me. I sort of thought that moment will come. 
Um, I actually wrote him apology letters because I was always wrong and always bad and, and, and it was always expected of me. But I think there was also a part of me that thought if I wrote him enough apology letters, he'd get the idea and he'd write one back and then he died. And so he's been dead for 31 years. But still the yearning for the apology has always been there. So that's one piece of it. The second piece is that having been an organizer and an activist for 21 years, my whole life really, in the movement to end violence against all women and girls, I've watched women tell our stories, break the silence, call men out, bravely tell our hearts and souls and, and, and risk humiliation, risk attack. And in all that time, I have never heard a man apologize publicly, authentically, deeply for what he's done. And in all the recent iteration of the Me Too movement, I have never heard a man publicly, authentically, deeply apologize. So I started to think, why is that? And then I started to ask people, have you ever heard a man? It's sort of the way I started the vagina monologues, you know, tell me about your vagina. I would say to, you know, <laughs> women, have you ever heard a man? And, and then nobody could answer one, you know, instance of that. And then I started to think, in 16,000 years of patriarchy, have we ever heard a man in recorded history, you know, that we could read a public apology and no one could point to one? So I suddenly realized that this might be fundamental to why we're still where we are and that maybe I could actually write my father's apology and say the words and create the words that I needed to hear in order to get free. And I embarked on this process, which was grueling, painful, revelatory, and ultimately profoundly liberating. So that's the kind of genesis of it. Thank you. So the book is written as your father writing to you. Um, and we have readings from the Audible edition of the Apology, which are performed by Eduardo Ballerini, who channels you channeling your father. <laughs> and we're going to play a couple of excerpts from the beginning of the book. How very strange to be writing you. Am I writing to you from the grave? Or the past? Or the future? Am I writing as you? Or as you would like me to be? Or as I really am beneath my own limited understanding? And does it matter? Am I writing in a language I never spoke or understood, which you have created inside both of our minds to bridge the gaps, the failures to connect? Maybe I am writing as I truly am, as you have freed me by your witness. Or I'm not writing this at all, but simply being used as a vehicle to fulfill your own needs and version of things. You always wrote me letters, I found that peculiar and strangely moving. We lived in the same house, but you were writing to me, your little girl handwriting attempting straight lines but wandering all over the page. It was as if you were trying to make contact with some aspect of me, a part you could not find in the heated moments of our conflict, as if you were trying through poetry to appeal to a secret self that I had once made available to you. Usually you wrote apology letters, so fitting that you would now want an apology letter from me. You were always apologizing, begging for forgiveness. I had reduced you to a daily degrading mantra of, I'm sorry. How did it feel to hear that? Well, the first time I heard a man read this, it was really weird and eerie. But it was also just like, I, you know, I was interviewed by this lovely man, Ron Charles, at, at the Washington Post, 
and he asked me if this was going to become a theater piece, which I'm really happy to say that it is. And I said, I think, <laughs> I said, I think women would pay a lot of money to come hear a man make an apology, you know. <laughs> um, and, and the truth of the matter is, like, every time I hear it, I feel more and more released because there's something about the concretization. There's something about an apology that is the alchemy of that, which I'll talk about more later, that is so releasing of so much in our bodies because we never hear it. And as weird as it sounds and as eerie as it feels, it just feels like, oh, okay. I, what I knew to be true all along was true all along, and now we're having a dialogue and we're going on a journey where that's going to get told, you know? Yeah. What were you looking for? I mean, is it even possible to put your finger on the characteristics that you were looking for in the delivery of the apology? If, you mean from the man? Yeah. Well, you, you know, I think writing this book was, was such a, a, a very um, strange experience, and I think I have to go back to that, because, you know... I was in the Congo, and, and for me, everything amazing happens in the Congo because it's one of the most mystical, spiritual places I've ever been. But it's a place that lives in the heart of ambiguity. It's been more colonized, more, there's been more racism, there's been more war, there's been more raping of people, of pillaging of resources, of stealing of land. And yet at the same time, it's the most beautiful country. The people are the most beautiful people. There's a life force and spirit there that is just like nothing I've ever experienced. And so whenever I'm there, I feel like I'm in the center of that incredible dynamic ambiguity and wisdom and churning. And I was at City of Joy in late summer and I was, I was listening to women tell their stories and the experiences they were going through. And that's when I realized this thing about apologies. And the minute I made this decision that I was going to write this letter from my father to me, and I called my agent from Congo like at 12 o'clock at night, and she was like, you have to do this book. I know this is what you have to do. You know, she's the most amazing woman. I, I know you all know who Charlotte Chidi is. She's like been the greatest feminist, and, and she supported some of the greatest writers from Audre Lorde to... Um, and anyway, so I came back, and when I opened the portal, when I, when I just invited my father to come in, it was as if I literally went into some trans state and he went into me and I went into him. And except for a few days, for four solid months, morning, noon, and night, I was in there. And I don't really know who wrote this book. I don't know if it was me or my father or me and my father or the, where we live or where we meet. Because what I really discovered, and I think all survivors know this, is that our perpetrators when they rape us or beat us or hurt us or demean us or harass us, they enter us. Um, they become embedded in us. And for my whole life, I was in dialogue with that father inside me. As a matter of fact, I've lived within his paradigm. I have been a perpetual victim to his abuser my whole life. That's framed my life. That paradigm has been the story of my life. And so it was not hard to access my father because he's always been there. And I think also for those of us who've been abused, particularly if it's a family member and it happens over and over, you know your abuser some ways better than yourself. You know their footsteps, you know the sound of their voice, it indicates whether they've had one or two drinks or if they're in a bad mood or a good mood. You learn to read every little aspect of them in order to learn how to pretend to protect yourself, right? And so I think once I began to find my father's voice, he took over in a way. It was like that thing where somebody's writing, you're moving your hand, you know? And I have to tell you, a lot of his vocabulary I don't know. 
I think his voice is much more formal and authorial, and it's not my voice. It's his voice. And in that sense, I think looking at actors and thinking who should read this, I know that the person has to be charming and seductive and scary and intimidating and authorial and someone you're drawn to and terrified at the same time, you know. And I listened to a bunch of people before I heard Eduardo and, and then I heard him and I thought, he gets it, you know. And he had a really profound experience doing it. He broke down sobbing in the middle of it, like it just because he has two daughters. So that was a really interesting thing, what he went through doing the audio. Well, let's, let's zoom out for a few minutes and talk about what you referenced when you talked about why you wrote this book, which is what the state of apologies is between men and women. We don't have a culture of apology, unless you're a woman, in which case you over-apologize. <laughs> and existing. And existing, right, just taking up a little bit of space. And in the Me Too movement, we heard thousands and thousands of stories that you already knew were out there. I mean, you've been living in this world and, and catching these stories, but... We heard hardly any apologies. And in fact, on, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, let's, you know, who refused to apologize and talked about beer. Right. So it seems like we need to understand, or maybe they need to understand, what is an apology, mm. that there's not necessarily a template for it. Well, I, I just want to say, I, I learned so much about what an apology is writing this book. I learned about the anatomy of an apology and the tenets of an apology. And I want to say a couple things. I think an apology is a humbling it's making yourself vulnerable. It's an equalizer. I think it's everything about an apology is in the details. Um, the liberation of the victim or the survivor is in the details. It's not, I'm sorry I sexually abused you, or I'm sorry I hurt you, or I'm sorry if you feel bad. It's here's exactly what I did, and here was my intention behind what I did. And I think we live in a country that has diabolical amnesia. Diabolical amnesia. We don't remember anything. We don't remember our origins, the, the genocide against the indigenous whose land we stand on. We don't remember the 400 years of slavery that annihilated hundreds and thousands of people and then moving into Jim Crow and then moving into mass incarceration. We don't remember our own families. The events that are happening in front of us, as they're happening, we're erasing them. And we don't remember yesterday's news. It's already gone. So I think what I really learned is that an apology is the antidote to amnesia. It actually makes what occurred, it makes it real. It did occur. I, I think of the comfort women who I've had the honor to know in the Philippines, but there were comfort women throughout Asia that were taken by the Japanese government in World War II. And they were held in rape camps when some of them were in their teens and early 20s. Sometimes they were raped up to 50 times a day to serve those soldiers. The comfort women have been waiting 70 years for an apology from the Japanese government. 70 years. Most of them have died. Many of them are infirmed. There's only a few left. All they wanted was the Japanese government to say that what happened did happen. We're not crazy people. We know what we experienced in our bodies and beings that we've carried all these years. And I think an apology actually does that. It says what occurred did occur. The other piece that I, I really learned is that for a man to apologize, one has to go back in time and history and understand what made you do what you did. What happened in your life? What happened in your origins? What happened in your childhood? Nobody is born a pedophile. No one is born with a machete in their hand. Something happens to boys that makes them turn and become different kinds of beings in this world. And I think one of the most profound aspects of writing this book, and the most difficult, 
I mean, I just want to say about this book, it's an offering, it's not a prescription, it's not a have to. There are many survivors who don't want an apology, will never want it, there's no must. I knew for me, I was at a point where I had vestiges left, I had anger left that was poisoning me. I was still living within my father's story, and I wanted to be living in a different story, and I wanted to see if I could get into that story. But I think one of the things that I discovered in going back into my father's story is like I began to unravel the why. And I think for all of us who've been abused, whether it's racial injustice, we are obsessed with the why. Why did my best friend drug me and date rape me? Why did the police shoot me because I'm a black person? Why did my father want to kill his oldest daughter? Why, why, why? And I think when you begin to go back, and, and I began to unravel, and my father began to tell me the story of his psychological, emotional evolution, or de-evolution in his case, I was like, oh, I see, I see the story that led up to him becoming... The, and in that sense, it wasn't about me anymore. I saw it was about him. I saw it was on him. It was what had been done to him that led him to do those things, but it had nothing to do with me being a bad person or a slut or a jackass or a whore or any of the terrible things he ever called me. And it really released me by understanding that why. And then I think the last piece, or the second last piece, is being accountable. Being accountable, once you've gone through that whole journey of self-interrogation and self reflection, and you've spelled out the details of what you've done, and you've looked into your malintentions, then it's taking responsibility for that in a way that your victim or survivor feels satisfied and indicates that you couldn't, you've gone through a deep enough journey where you couldn't possibly do that to somebody else. To me, that's an apology. We teach prayer in school. Right? We teach the devotion of prayer and the concentration of prayer. We teach the humbling of the petition. But we don't teach the practice of apology. We teach maybe, oh, I'm sorry. But that's not an apology. An apology is a deep, profound, spiritual, psychological, political act. And we live in a country that is so not about apologies. It's punitive. It's violent, it's punitive, it's violent, it's, it, it, that's the cycle we're in. The apology is the practice that can break us out of that cycle. Mm. Well, <laughs> so you write in the book, in your father's words, that to be an apologist is to be a traitor to men. Well, you've said already that you, you opened a portal and he came through you. Um, but I still have the question, do you think that he really felt that or do you think that he was using that as an excuse? Well, I, th I think when my father said that to me and I really felt like he said it to me because I don't know how I would know that, he just basically said to me to be an apologist is a traitor to men. Once one man apologizes and, and admits he knows that he's wrong and he knew what he was doing was wrong, the whole story of patriarchy begins to crumble. And I really literally stopped in my tracks for the rest of that day. I was like, wow, this is a column. This is a major column of pa patriarchy, the apology. And I think what I really understood, I mean, there's a point in the book where my father is, he gets to move from limbo to hell. And in hell, he meets all the fathers. And he actually says to me at one point, I would rather spin in hell and be within the tribe of men then I apologize because at least within the tribe of men, I know my identity, I know my value, I have privilege, I have power. But to give this up, who would I be? And I think 
one of the things that patriarchy is so genius at is offering no alternatives, right? It's constantly dividing people and separating people with no, with no doorways out. So I think, and, I, and I've said this my whole life, that the tyranny of patriarchy has been much, much more devastating to men than it has to women. We have our hearts intact. We have our spirits intact. I think what's happened to men, and I really learned this in this book, is, and I can just say a little bit about my father's childhood. My father was born like 12 years after the last child in his family. He was the mistake that became the miracle. He was the golden boy, the divine right of kings. He was going to bring the family to the promised land. And my father was adored, adored. But adoration is not love. And I really want to make this distinction. We adore boys. And what that means is we have projected ideal images of who they're supposed to be that we project onto them that they have to live up to, having very often nothing to do with who they really are. And so every time a boy experiences his tenderness or his vulnerability or his heart or his sorrow or his wonder, and that's not in keeping with that adoration, he's got to push it underground. And he's got to push it underground. And he's got to push it underground. And in my father's case, he pushed it so much underground that it eventually metastasized into another persona called the shadow man, who he talks about in the book. And that shadow man actually surfaced at my birth. Because what happened was, I was the first daughter, and my father was overwhelmed with the tenderness he did not know how to experience. He had been robbed of his own tenderness. He didn't know how to be tender to himself and he didn't know how to be tender in the world. And so when I was born, he didn't know to sit with tenderness. You know, I was saying last night, my granddaughter was in the audience. I look at my granddaughter sometime, and I'm filled with such overwhelming love for them. I don't know what to do. I sometimes just sit and cry. It's just so big, that love. And I know how to sit with that tenderness. I just weep. But if you've never had the experience of having tenderness, you want to get rid of it. You want to smash it, you want to exploit it, you want to rape it, you want to conquer it, you want to dominate it, you want to, you want to make it go away. And I think that's what happened in my father's early years with me. I think he began adoring me and, and being overwhelmed by that, and then it became very perverse and sexual and weird. And I think part of what we have to look at is, why are we separating our boys from their hearts? Why are we creating idealized images of them, of who they're supposed to be, when they're actually just brilliant who they are? They're tender and they're funny and they're wise and they're full of sparkle. And if they want to wear pink, let them wear pink. And if they want to dress with fairy wings, let them dress with fairy wings. But we have all these ideas of what they're supposed to be. And, and so what we do is we separate them and we separate them and we separate them from their hearts, from their selves, from their feelings. And then we ask ourselves, why is this 18-year-old boy lying on top of a girl, raping her when she's screaming, no, no, no? Well, he's not feeling anything. He's not feeling what she's feeling because he's not feeling, he's, he's been robbed of his feelings. So I think that really opened up a huge piece of compassion in me towards my father, not to justify his behavior. I think there's a big difference between justification and explanation, but he explained it. And if we don't get underneath why men are doing what they're doing, if we don't get underneath this story, if we keep going at it and at it, we are going to disappear as a human species. We are going to disappear. We, are going to, we will become extinct. So I think that's what th that excavation taught me. So you and I had a chance to talk almost exactly a year before the Me Too movement exploded. 
And in this particular conversation, you said that we are at a tipping point for men to rise up and declare they're going to bring in a new idea of what manhood is and what it means to live in a world where women are safe and free. Mm. And I, I, I mean, I feel like with your publishing this book and you know, getting your message out to as many people as you are in the way that you are, that you are manifesting mm. that movement and you are making it possible for that to start happening. I mean, it feels like the logical next step in where we are with women raising their voices and saying what happened to them, that men need to take their part and, and own that responsibility. And I was wondering if we could talk just a bit about kind of where we are in the chain of events that could lead us to this moment where this could actually work. Well, I think the, the $10 million question is what will catalyze men to engage in this process, right? And I have to say, um, having been on this book tour now for five or six or seven weeks, I've been really moved by men. I've been moved by male journalists. I've been moved by men who've invited me on their shows. I've been moved by men in audiences. And I think we all feel this. We're at this moment in human civilization that either we're going to perish or we're going to break through to the next level of human consciousness. And I know I can only say that I don't believe in punishment. I was raised on punishment every day. I was punished every day of my life. It didn't educate me. It didn't transform me. It didn't make me a better person. It made me bitter. It made me defiant. It made me raging. It made me hateful. And I think if we look at our prison system, obviously it's an, a diabolical system, which is highly unjust in terms of the racist aspects of it and the economic injustice aspects of it. But prisons don't make people better. They harden people and they erase people, and they exile people. And I think what I, I guess I've always believed what Castro said, that we only need 10% of the people to have a revolution. We need 10% of the men to be brave now, and to come forward, and to begin the process of reckoning, and begin the process of speaking into and doing the deep work, asking themselves why they've done, why they continue to do the things they do. Not expecting attack and to be thrown away, but we have to open a pathway so that this process can occur. Because otherwise, we're really going to just be at a stalemate. And I was really moved to see that the NYPD apologized for Stonewall. I thought that was really profound. And I thought it's in the air, like something's beginning to shift. I've been seeing these little, little doorways of apologies beginning to open. But I don't know about you, but that was a very profound thing to hear a police officer say we were wrong. We did something that was unjust, and we are taking responsibility for that. And I think, you know, we have a website now called theapologybook.net where wonderful people have been writing about what is an apology and why is it important. And Farah Tanis did this beautiful, beautiful guide for how to do apologies. But we've also been inviting people to write in apologies either to their victims or write apologies as their perpetrators to themselves. And we got our first apology, I'm happy to say. And it was a man. And I have to say, it was a real apology of a boy who had molested a 15-year-old when he was 21 years old. And in his letter, he took complete responsibility for what he had done on every level. I knew that you were younger. I used you. I manipulated you. I got you to believe and trust me, but I took advantage of that. He went down, boom, boom. And I have to say, just reading that letter, other things got released in me. 
because it's a communal process. When one person apologizes, you begin to feel what's been holding in you all these years. You begin to feel the tentacles of that releasing. And what I'm hoping, what I'm dreaming, is that men will now feel emboldened to come forward. And I just want to say this. You know, people keep saying it's so hard for men to come forward. We have been doing this work for 70 years, women starting with the African-American women who came forward initially to fight off white rapists and put their souls on the line and risk all kinds of violence. We have put ourselves on the line. We have told our stories. We have risked shame. We've been under attack. I mean, we all only have to look to Anita Hill or Christine Blasey Ford. We have done that scary work, and we're still standing. And men can now do that scary work. And we have to obviously help create a pathway, but there have to be the brave men who are willing to say, all right, I'm gonna come forward and do that. And what's the payoff? The payoff is you don't get out of this world. You don't get out of this world having done something violent and evil and mean without it contaminating your soul forever. You don't. And you're holding it in your body, in your being, whether you're conscious of it or not, and it's impacting everything you do every day of your life. So the payoff is you get free. You get free. And I think the point of existence is to get free. So I hope there will be a cadre of men who step by step by step begin to come forward and break their silence and begin to tell their stories and to begin to reckon and apologize in the way that women need to hear. <laughs> So not everyone's ready to forgive, right? So what would you say to women who are, they're not quite in the place where they even want the apology? Is it possible for men to still go through the process even if there's not someone there that is ready to forgive them? Well, I don't think the apology should be based on forgiveness. I don't even know mm -hmm. if I know what forgiveness is, and I'm just going to be honest. The words always kind of creep me out, and, and I'll just say why. I, I feel that it always has religious overtones, and it always feels man-dated, like it's an obligation. And I don't know how to do that. I, I don't think the onus is ever on the victim to forgive. But what I do believe in is the alchemy of an apology. I think when someone sits and looks at you across the table, and you are clear that they have given you a detailed accounting of what they've done, where they've gone into their souls and they've investigated why they've done it, what led them to do it, where they've gone through every detail of unveiling their intentions and made amends, something actually happens in your body, in your mind, in your spirit. You can feel the tentacles of rancor and betrayal and hate. All of it just begins to go bing, 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 bing. If that's forgiveness, I'm all for forgiveness. You know, that, if that's what forgiveness feels like. Um, I don't think anyone has to forgive. I don't, I sometimes hear bad therapists telling survivors, you know, forgive now and get over it. I just think that's deadly. It's deadly. That's not something that can happen or that's not my experience of what can happen. What happens is you go through a process and I think if you can't get an apology from your perpetrator, and in many cases women can't, I would highly recommend doing this exercise not alone, you should do it with a counselor or a therapist or a clergy or a friend, but I will tell you something. We hold these perpetrators inside of us, and when we write letters from them to ourselves, we can move how they live inside us. So for example, my father was here for years and years and years, monster lodged here, and I was in this dynamic with him where I was victim to his 
perpetrator forever. I mean, everything I do was about, you see, I'm not the stupid person you thought I was, proving to him, always in relationship to that. And that was his story, right? In writing this apology, I moved him from monster to apologist. I moved him from terrifying entity to broken, tragic, wounded boy. And in doing that, he lost power over me. He lost agency over me. And I think at City of Joy, a month ago, Christine decided she would try this exercise out. City of Joy is a sanctuary for healing and a revolutionary center in the Congo. It's a V-Day project and it's run by Christine Schuller Describer and it's, it's just the most beautiful project where 90 women come for six months to be trained, to be healed, to be supported, who have suffered very, very bad sexual trauma. And she introduced this exercise and she said, it's unbelievable what started to happen. And she came into her office last week and there were piles of letters. Women have been up all night writing letters from their perpetrators to themselves and they were feeling so free and they were feeling... So I think it has the potential to liberate in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Well, it does seem like... It, you said you can feel it in the air. It does seem like, you know, there's the restorative justice movement mm -hmm. and there's there are now just all these fresh ways of looking at how to deal with the past in a way that is respectful and um, acknowledging of what really did happen and not brushing it over. Um, so in your book, you go into a wrenching detail. Um, he writes that he would enumerate what you did wrong every week or every day and have his secretary type it up on his letterhead and then present it to you so that you would have to apologize for every item on the list. Right? I mean, <laughs> no, but it was even weirder than that. I mean, he would, he would type up all the things I had done wrong on a memo from the desk of Arthur S. Ensler, and it would be typed up. And then I was 16. He had a ping pong paddle, and he would take down my underpants and bend me over his bed. And for everything I would done wrong, he would whack me with the ping pong paddle. So there was a whole kind of sadistic thing built into the I'm sorry bit, you know. Um, and I think, I, I think it's why I despise torture so much, why I despise punishment so much. Because I, th I think something I really learned as a child, the only way to survive that is to separate from yourself. The only way to survive that kind of ongoing violence is to leave your body. I'm, I can remember hearing him call me down and knowing I was going into a brutal session. And I would stand in front of the mirror and I would look at myself and I would say, you're going to go away now. You're not going to feel anything. You're going to disappear. You're not going to go into this. You stay here, and the rest of you will go downstairs. And then I would go downstairs, and he'd throw me against walls, or he'd punch me, or he'd do, and I wouldn't feel a thing. I wouldn't feel a thing. And that prepared me to live a life where I would put myself in constant danger and not feel a thing, right? And so that's what we do when we brutalize people. We, we, we prepare them and, and either to become brutalizers and in the, in, in, the, in the case of men who feel like they have power in the world, that's where they go. Um, in the case of some women who feel like they finally can't bear it anymore, they act out and they have violence. But for a lot of us, it's just about separating from ourselves and becoming kind of um, open to the violent mercy of the world because you don't feel and protect yourself from the danger that's around you. What's so interesting, tragic... I'm not sure the right adjective about that is that that's the same way that you talked about your father having this alternate self exactly. also. Um, do we want to do another reading? Sure. Okay, so this is, this goes into the details. So 
uh, trigger moment may just prepare yeah, yourself. It, this will be intense, so everybody just prepare a little bit. I would find myself in your room at some twilight hour. I only felt alive between the daylight and darkness in that crepuscular realm where dream and memory are indecipherable. That's how I controlled you. Those aphotic hours where others in the house were lost in sleep and you were in a trance, separated from your body. I would find myself sitting on your bed, somehow carried there by shadow men. You would pretend to be asleep, as if what was happening was not happening. You desperately wanted it and me to go away. I didn't go away. I never spoke, never uttered a sound. The silence was my power. Words would break the spell, make it real and ugly and what it was. What kind of bastard have I been? What kind of destruction have I wrought? I have lied and lied to myself and you. I cursed your future of love. At five, I took your body. You didn't give it to me. I contaminated your sweetness. I ripped the protective golden gates from your garden. I betrayed your trust. I rearranged your sexual chemistry and the basis of your desire. Wrongness and excitement were forever fused together. I made my stain. I left my stinking mark. I infected you. By invading and overwhelming your body, I killed your yearning so early. You did not and could not give me permission. There was no consent. You did not seduce me with your crinoline petticoats. You were simply being an adorable child. I overstimulated your five-year-old body and planted the seeds of intensity and thrill. You would push yourself too far, take heroin, jump off bridges, drive a hundred miles an hour. I robbed you of the ordinary. I destroyed your notion of family. I forced you to betray your mother. You lived in perpetual self-hatred and guilt. I created hierarchy, distrust, and violent competition between you and your siblings. None of you would recover from this. I robbed you of agency over your body. You didn't make any decisions. You didn't say yes. That was my projection in order to satisfy my needs. You were five years old. I was fifty-two. You had no sovereignty. I exploited and abused you. I took your body. It was no longer yours. I rendered you passive. You compulsively gave it to whoever wanted it because I taught you you should. I forced you out of your body, and because you were dislocated and numb, you were unable to protect yourself. I compromised your safety and ability to defend yourself. I made it so that rape became what turned you on. I eviscerated your necessary boundaries so you never knew what was yours and when to say no or how to say stop. I tore the delicate walls of your vagina and made it vulnerable to disease and infection. Your body didn't and couldn't say yes. This was a convenient lie I told myself. You didn't know it was sex. I took what I needed by convincing myself you needed it too. I exploited your adoration. I forced you into secrecy, to lie to your mother, to develop a dual life. This split you in two. I made you feel like a whore. 
I made you feel you were never worthy of legitimate love. I made intimacy claustrophobic. I left my poison in you. I destroyed your memory by making you want to forget everything. This impacted your intelligence and ability to contain facts and take tests. I stole your innocence. I dimmed your life force and made you feel your sexuality was the cause of bad things. I used your being and body to serve myself. I did all this. Thank you for letting us share that. Um, there are a couple questions that have come in asking about your mom and where she was when all this was happening. Do you want to talk about mm. that? I think, um, I think, you know, I, my mother and I went through a really long journey after I confronted her. But I, I, I think my mother was of a generation where they didn't believe they were equal to men. Um, they believed that men had the power. My, my father was like a CEO. My mother was at best his executive assistant, you know. And I often felt like he had four children, and she was one of them. She was a woman who had been very poor, had grown up in the Midwest. And my father was her way out of that poverty. And I think by the time the abuse started, she had three children, and she had no economic security. She had no economic wherewithal. She had no job. She had no prospects. And when I, when I confronted my mother, which was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, to just sit and face my mother and say what my father had done to me, um, of course, she knew. It was very odd because at the, at the end of it, she said, well, I know your father almost murdered you. I was there for all the times he did that when he beat you and everything. But I didn't know about the sexual stuff. As if the beatings were all fine. It was just a weird little moment. Um, <laughs> But um, later she, she repented for that, but it was just like a weird... But um, my mother said to me, uh, months after I confronted her, she called me up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and she was hysterical one night, and she said, I realize I sacrificed you. I sacrificed you. I could not bear the idea of being poor again. And I really let your father do what he wanted to you to keep my security. And... As devastating as that was, it, it, I knew it was true. And so it was the beginning of my mother making amends to me because she told me the truth. And we went through a very long journey before she died. And I feel like every day, she once said to me something really startling. And it showed me the power of perpetrators over our, our lifetime, not just this lifetime, but many, many lifetimes. She said to me, what if I meet your father in the next life? And he's mad at me that I believed you. And to me, that was the most shuddering thing she ever said to me. Wow. Because he even had power in death over her. And um, I don't know why, that just, I just remembered that. It just makes me so sad. Because I, th I, I, I don't think we can underestimate ever what violence does to us how deeply it goes in not just to the cellular makeup of our physical bodies, but into the, the, the spiritual DNA of not only this story, but our ancestral story. It just goes on and on into generation because fear is so powerful. It's so powerful. And so I, I think with my mother, um, because she just kept going back at it, 
to try to go deeper into it, to explain and understand why she had done before she died. When she died, we were in a beautiful place, and I was able to really let her go. And she was able, I, I feel like she, we left this world in a really, she left this world in a really good place. Um, well, who was the first person that you ever told that this was happening? Was it your mom? No. No. No, by no means. No, it was, it, it was the, the violence. The first time I ever talked about it, I was drunk with my two roommates, and everyone was laughing and talking about things, and, and I was talking, I was just, I, you know when you grow up in, in a violent situation, you have no context to understand that that's weird or abnormal, so you just think everybody's family does that. So I had these two fabulous roommates, and I was making a joke, and I went, and then my father said to my mother, Chris, get the kitchen knife. And everyone paused <laughs> and said, what? And I said, yeah, he told my mother to get the kitchen knife so he could stab me. And they were like, that is not normal. That's not okay. That is not okay. You know, and it was the first time anyone reflected back to me, right, that I had grown up in a very seriously damaged situation. <laughs> um, and I think it wasn't until later when I went into therapy that I began to, because for many, many, many years, I had no memory of the first 10 years of my life. Absolutely no memory. It was just blotto. Like I began at 10. Hmm. And then as I began to melt and my numbness began to melt over time, because I was highly anesthetized, I was a raging alcoholic and a drug addict, I just anesthetized. And, and so it took a process of numbing and, and coming out of numbing and melting and melting. So I began to feel and then began to remember, you know. So how, how did you, how did you break the cycle of abusing yourself, basically, I mean, through drugs and alcohol? How did you... With the help of really amazing people. I mean, I, you know, somebody said the other night, like, what are the things that saved you, right? And I think there were two things that saved me. One was imagination and the ability to imagine another world where I was going and people who would be coming. And the other was just amazingly kind people who intervened on my behalf throughout my life. And I don't think we can underestimate how one person's kindness towards somebody can absolutely radicalize their life particularly when you've come from total deprivation, do you know? And I, I think I was in the 12-step programs for a long time, and when I came into the 12-step programs, there was, there was like no women, and people were so kind to me. They were just so kind to me. And it was that, you know, um, people could see me before I could see myself, mm -hmm. and they held a vision of me that, that I could live into. And I think it's why I believe, um, I don't know, when I hit bottom, I hit rock bottom, as an alcoholic and it was a really bad scene and I almost died and I got on my hands and knees in a parking lot in Puerto Rico and I just said, I, and I remember this like it was yesterday, I was 23 years old, I said, if you don't let me go crazy or die, I promise you, if, if you help me get better, I will go back for the others, I swear to God. And you know what? That was the best vow I ever made, you know, because I think when you give people what you want the most, you heal the broken part inside you. Um, it's always going out to help people that you heal yourself because it's too hard in here, you know? Yeah. So when, when did you feel like you kind of put yourself back together, that the two parts of you were reunited in, into finding yourself? 
I think it's like a gradual process. Mm. You know, it didn't... I, I think bits of you come in. I remember when I was performing the vagina monologues and I had been living way outside my vagina for many, many years, like looking down at it. Um, I was performing it for months and months and one night I just landed in my vagina. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm in my vagina. Like I literally went, woof. And, and like, okay, so that, I came back in there. And then like, and, and then I was in, you know? And then like, like little pieces, then one day you come back into your heart. One day you come back, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a process of return, right? It's a process of coming back in. And it doesn't happen overnight. But if you're steady at it and you keep working at it and you keep, and if you want it, if you want to live in the body of the world, if you want to live in your body and in the body of the earth, if that's your desire, it will happen. I think the worst thing they tell rape survivors and survivors of violence is that you're broken forever. That's the second rape. And it's just not true. It's just not true. We can, we can come back in. We can be just, we can be more amazing because we've gone through all that. And we can be more strong and more vital and more energized after. And I think we have to get out of this idea that we're forever locked into that story, their story. We have to create our story now. Our story is not about victims and perpetrators. Our story is about this, you know? And that, and that comes back to, well, you had a conversation with Kimberly Crenshaw a week or so ago, and she called it having, you have to have radical empathy. I mean, you, I mean radical, like at its root, mm -hmm. empathy to be able it feels like to be able to break out of out of that because you have to be able to hold what happened to you and know that it was real and also to be able to have start to have an understanding of where it came from totally and i think part of it is checking out with yourself like i feel like i used to i, I would have empathy for this person and this person but i had conditional empathy <laughs> right there were the people i just didn't have empathy for like men right um, and and this book really changed that. But I want to tell you this one little sto this story because this, w this was the day when, when I began to understand how empathy can't be conditional. I was working at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility and it was running groups. And I had this uh, group of amazing um, long-term um, inmates who were all there for violent crimes, mainly murders. And I, I had one session with these women. I fell completely in love with all of them except for one. And this woman gave me this super creeps. And I didn't like her. And everything about her creeped me out. And, and I had no compassion for her and no empathy for her. And so we were going around every week. And each week, um, it was like you tell one story from one to nine that would really evidence what you went through at that period. So we'd go around the circle. And the second session, that woman came in and she sat down next to me. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> like, I had such a creepy feeling about this woman, I can't tell you. And, and so all the women around, and I want to tell you that just about every woman in that circle who had, had been radically sexually abused, radically, horribly abused as children, right? So we got to her, and I was actually, like, kind of leaning like this, you know, like, <laughs> away from her. And she started to tell her story. And she told her story. And I can cry again hearing this story. And she said that when she was a child, her mother and her stepfather rented her out as a sex toy. And they let 
all the people, you know, they had all these clients that would use her basically as a baby dildo, <sighs> and they would do everything to her, and they would tie her to beds, and they would just horrible things. And then her mother died, and her stepfather married her. And he then turned her into his little pimp, where she would go out and she would find children in the neighborhood and bring them in so they could abuse them. And one of the children died, and she came to prison. And when she was in prison, she had no idea why she was there. Because she'd never lived in any other moral universe. She had nothing to compare it to. She didn't understand that what had happened to her was bad, because that was all that she knew. And it took her five years in prison to understand it, and then she started to cut herself to try to kill herself. And she actually said in the group, never let me out of prison. And I just started to sob. And I realized I had made a story up about this woman because of her pockmarked skin and the way she looked and her vibration. And I, I had written her off. I had written her off. And I made a contract with myself that after that day, I would just assume that any person I sat next to was traumatized and had been through something really terrible. And if it wasn't first, it, it wasn't primary, it was secondary, or they were witness to it, and that everybody we're sitting next to is traumatized. Some more than others, some have more privileged in their trauma, but we're all suffering. And we're suffering so much in this country, and I'm sorry I'm crying, but I've just been around this country for the last days and days. I feel like I've fallen into the center of the wound. We are so hurting in this country. We are so exiled, we're so lonely, we're so separated, we're so divided. And if we're going to go on, we have to reach out and feel each other and let each other into ourselves and take everybody in so that we feel each other and we understand we're not alone in this and we're in the same struggle to evolve as human beings and to become free from our suffering. Sorry. <laughs> it's been a lot, a lot of stories, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I, based on this whole conversation that applies to women and men and all genders, everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's talk about how others might use this approach. I mean, you, you've set up a website. Um, you're going to do a play. You, you said that it's an offering, not a prescription, that maybe not everyone's going to want to do it. Um, but you're, you're starting to see results. And, I, I mean, I feel like you're creating a model for how the world can be by doing this. Well, I, I think there's so many people doing such amazing work right now with restorative justice and really beginning to understand that prisons are not the answer. And that's the metaphor. Like, we have to get out of prisons, just even cages. The idea that we, we, we harden, that we harden um, things rather than releasing things and moving through, through things. And, and what I hope is, is that, first of all, I hope that men will be inspired on their own to begin to come forward, to start to work with clergy, with counselors, to go through a process where they look at their behavior, where they look at what they've done, where they begin to write their apologies and write in and go through a process. And, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw and I were talking, like, how does this apply to justice? Maybe there becomes a way where prosecutors say to victims, what do you want? Do you want your, do you want your perpetrator in prison? Or do you want an apology process? 
Do you want to see your perpetrator go through a year or two where they do massive therapy, massive work on themselves, spiritual work, where they go through something? And at the end, we have panels in communities of advocates and social justice people and, and, and therapists who sit and listen to the perpetrator make an apology to the victim. And if the victim accepts it, then the panel and the victim determine whether that person has done the work or they have to go back and do more work. But we have, we have ways out of this. So we're not freezing people forever in their badness and in their mistakes. Because we're all prisoners to racist patriarchy. It's brought us all up. And we have to admit to that. Like, the system has created all of us. So what we need is the men now to catalyze this and, and say, I'm coming forward to break out of the system. So we do have some audience questions. Okay. Um, this is about your father. Did your father express fear before his death, as if he perhaps sensed he was headed for limbo until he became accountable for his abuse of you? No. <laughs> as a matter of fact, um, he never let me know he was dying. And a few days before he died, he came out of his, you know, drugged stupor to tell my mother to take me out of his will. And he said to her, if I ever told her anything, it was a lie because I was a liar. And it's really interesting, when I confronted my mother, she said if he hadn't said that to her, she wouldn't have believed me. But because he mm -hmm. was so worried about it coming out, he came out of a morphine stupor to say it to her. <laughs> so I think that's really profound. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that was the one and only time he ever even would have alluded to it in his whole life? Well, I think so much about my father after he had kind of destroyed me through the sexual abuse. I was the walking reminder of that by my... Yeah, I cut off all my hair. I was always belligerent. I, I was always, like, depressed. You know, I was, I was kind of a pathetic child after that. And I think he... I was evidence of what he had done, so he wanted to destroy the evidence, and he wanted to destroy me. And I think one of the things I learned writing this book is what perpetrators do to delegitimize all the people who know the truth. This is exactly what our predator-in-chief mm -hmm. has done over these last few years, which is constantly delegitimize different groups to make them feel like they are nothing and no one. And he does it through all these things so that there's nobody who can call him who's legitimate on what he's doing. It's also making himself the victim, which is what perpetrators are genius at. Like, suddenly, we're all, it's all a witch hunt, and we're all after him, and it's, it, that's always my, was my father's. Look what you've made me do to you. I had to beat you almost to death because of what you did. I'm the victim here. You know, is that turning things around? Mm. Um, here's another audience question. Um, and we've been speaking mostly of men as abusers. Um, so you speak of boys being robbed of certain feelings and emotions, but the same happens to women. We were raised not being allowed to be angry, spirited, or even speak when not spoken to. Yep. Yet women did not turn into abusers. What explains the difference? It's mm, a think? good question. Um, I think my, my thought about that is, and maybe I'm wrong about this, is that we may not have allowed to express our anger but we were allowed to have our hearts. We were allowed to feel, we were allowed to cry, we were allowed to be connected to ourselves. Um, and, 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 and I can't say what the impact of testosterone versus estrogen, I have no idea. But I do know that even if we're not allowed to have our anger, we have relationship. We have relationship. Like, who was I talking to the other day that they were just saying like, they know so many men 
who don't, who aren't in deep relationships. They, they are alone. And part of when we remove people from their hearts and remove people from their tenderness, we remove them from community. We remove them from those deep relationships. So I know what saved me is having women friends and girlfriends and people I could emote with constantly because I was just an emotional creature my whole life. And I, I think when you're not allowed that, you know, um, I was once in Kosovo and I'll never forget this, and I had gone with friends um, after the war whose house had been destroyed, and I went to help them clean their house, and we were going around, and we were finding people in the communities who needed mattresses and help, and all the roads were full of landmines. It was really crazy, and we went into this backyard, and we found this mother and her daughter, and their house was all graffitied, and they were living in the backyard, and they were sleeping on the ground, and the mother was really concerned because her two sons had not returned for two years. And we came back the next day and we bought the mattresses. And five minutes before we had arrived, her son had come home. And I heard in the backyard this huge commotion. Everyone was crying and screaming. And it was just like this wild, it was wild. And I walked into the yard and for some reason he saw me and because America had helped Kosovo, I don't know what it was, he was like, oh my God. And he threw himself on me and he started to wail. I mean, well, just like, ah. and I had two thoughts. This was many, many years ago. Oh my God, there is a man and he's wailing on me. <laughs> and oh my God, there's a man and he's wailing on me. And they were very conflicted. And I realized in that moment <laughs> that me, feminist Eve, was having issues with a big man wailing on me, right? That even built into my DNA was oh, men don't do that. Men are strong, men are this, men are that. And in that moment, I went, oh, I get this. As this man was in my arms, weeping and weeping, I went, oh, bullets are hardened tears. That's what they are. They're hardened tears. They're the tears that didn't get to happen, right? And I really think if we really allowed men to begin to release the pain that's inside them, there will be a tsunami of feelings that begins to start to tumble out. And that will be the beginning of our liberation. I really believe that. Yeah. That's an incredible story. That's an incredible story. Well, that takes us to our last reading, because ultimately, spoiler alert, there is an apology <laughs> in the book. And we're going to hear it. Eve, let me say these words. I am sorry. I am sorry. Let me sit here at the final hour. Let me get it right this time. Let me be staggered by your tenderness. Let me risk fragility. Let me be rendered vulnerable. Let me be lost. Let me be still. Let me not occupy or oppress. Let me not conquer or destroy. Let me bathe in the rapture. Let me be the father. Let me be the father who mirrors your kind-heartedness back to you. Let me lay no claims. Let me bear witness and not invade. Eve, I free you from the covenant. I revoke the lie. I lift the curse. Old man, be gone. 
Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful way. Really. Um, hi. I'm about to go to college in the fall, and it's really interesting to hear a woman so, I mean, you're not old, but you've lived a long time. I am old. <laughs> you've I'm lived, not. You've lived so much longer than me, and I'm scared to embrace the world because I've already had men take advantage of me at such a young age, and I'm basically asking, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? What, would you, what, what advice would you offer her? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, I would tell my 18-year-old self that I have value, that my life is worthy, that my body is beautiful, that I have meaning, that no one has a right to do anything to me that I don't give them consent to do, that if anybody does that, I have the right and I, my obligation and responsibility to report that that I, I should surround myself with women and men who cherish me and celebrate me and honor me. And those are the only circles I should be in. And that I shouldn't do anything to harm my body or to harm anybody else. Thank you for asking that question. Find a sisterhood, find, find women, find women who can be your posse and protect you and, and lift you up. And only find friends who really want you to be your best self and really want you to thrive. So I have two questions. Okay. Uh, one is, where did you find your strength and where did you find your support to keep going? Because it was 13 years that you lived in an abusive situation. Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. Um, I was telling this story last night, which I'll tell you. I think I found my strength through two things when I was a child. One, through writing. And, and, and having a book where I could create this alternative persona, I found it through my imagination. And I'll tell you this little story because I, I love the story so much. Um, when, when, when things would get really, really bad in my house, um, I would do one of two things. I would split off. I would go into the mirror. Because you know, you know when you live with an alcoholic parent, uh, for those of you who have grown up with one, you always know what their moods are based on the tone of their voice or you can tell how many drinks somebody has had based by their footsteps or their loudness or the tremble in their voice. And so when I knew my father was pumping it up and I could hear him beginning to call me, I would go into the mirror and I would talk to myself and I would literally say, you are going to go away now. You're not going to be in your body. You're not going to feel whatever he does to you. He will not make you cry. You will not feel pain. Okay, that was, that was not a good response, but it, it, it saved me. And for many years later, I had to begin to weave those two parts of myself back together. But the best part was that I had this imaginary friend named Mr. Alligator. And when it got really bad, I would go and I would pick up the phone. In those days, they were rotary dials. And I would dial the phone and I would say, Mr. Alligator. And I would say it really loudly so that they would know I was calling him. I'm ready. I'll be outside in five minutes, I need to go. And they made fun of it, they thought it was hysterically pathetic, everyone, but I would pack my little bag, I would literally put crayons and an orange in it, and I would go out, and there was a pathway right through our, our front lawn, and I would walk down the pathway, and I would sit down, and I would literally wait the entire day for Mr. Alligator to come. And you know, he didn't come then, and each time I did it, he didn't come, but I knew he was coming. 
And I, every single time, would just go and I would wait for Mr. Alligator to come. And I never was disappointed because I just knew something had held him up or he had other children to take care of or someone had it worse off than me. Or I had always reasons why he didn't come. So cut to 40 years later. I'm in Narak, Kenya. I'm doing a research for the, a play I wrote called The Good Body. And I'm hearing about all kinds of women who are both torturing their bodies and women who are, are loving their bodies. And I'm visiting all these people all over the planet. And I hear about a woman named Agnes Pereo, who is working in Narak to stop the process um, and the practice of female genital mutilation on little girls. And for those of you who don't know what it is, little girls have their vaginas mutilated when they're coming of age, at the point where they're supposed to go to school, so that, that they will be not sexually active, they will no longer have sexual desires, and their clitoris is removed, and sometimes they're sewn together with thorns, and it's a horrible practice, and often on the wedding night, the husband punctures the thorns, so they're ripped apart, they often die in childbirth, they have terrible infections, and this practice has happened to 130 million girls. And Agnes was in Iraq working on this practice, and she literally was walking through the Maasai Rift Valley, because she was a Maasai, teaching young Maasai families and older Maasai families what the practice was. And as she walked, she had a box, which was an anatomical structure of a vagina. And she would walk into communities, and she would show people what a healthy vagina was and what a mutilated one. And as she walked through the Rift Valley, because the, the Maasai are nomads and they build their huts out of cow dung, and once the cow dung dissolves, they go on and they build new huts, she had saved 1,500 girls from being cut. And when I met her, I fell in love with her. And I was like, Agnes, what can we do for you? And she said, well, Eve, if you got me money, I could get a Jeep and I could get around a lot faster. <laughs> so the first year, we bought Agnes a Jeep, and in that year, she saved three times as many girls. And I said, okay, Agnes, what else can we do for you? And she said, well, if you gave me money, we could build a house, and we could have girls run away, and we could keep them here, and then we could reconcile them later on with their families. So V-Day bought her a house and gave her the money, and she built a house. And for many, many years, Agnes has saved thousands of girls. And I have to tell you, when she started, 80% of, 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 of people in Kenya were mutilated, and it's now 20%. And she is now the head of the Female Genital Mutilation, Anti-Female MGM Commission of Kenya. When she began, she was exiled, and she was completely you know, thwarted. But I'll tell you what was amazing about this. The day that the B-Day Safe House opened in Kenya, I arrived, and I heard all this amazing singing and dancing. And I got out of the car, and everything was red, red costumes, red flying things, red. And all the girls were, were dressed in red, and they were dancing and dancing and singing, and they were just greeting me. And I looked down, and it was the exact same path of my childhood. And I realized that Mr. Alligator had come. And that is the power of the imagination. That is the power of conjuring. If we see things and we hold them in our third art, in our imagination, we can manifest them. And I think imagination is absolutely what saved my life. And I think there were loving people, a few loving people who intervened and were kind to me and showed me that people could be different. My question is two parts. The first is, um, what are your thoughts on forgiveness? And the second is, after receiving the apology, do you forgive your dad? Do I what? Forgive my do dad? Um, 
I have, I'm really mixed on the word, word forgiveness. And I'll tell you why. I think it's been used often as a tool against us. We're told a lot, um, why don't you just forgive them already? Get over it. What are you making such a fuss about? Move on, right? It's kind of used as a mandate, you know? <laughs> like you are mandated to um, forgive. And that never worked for me because it doesn't feel organic. I do believe in the alchemy of the apology. And what I mean by that is that when you receive a thorough, authentic apology, you know it. And something happens in your body, in your being, in your mind, in your soul. There is a release that occurs in that moment. You don't feel angry anymore. You don't feel vindictive anymore. You don't feel, you don't feel anything, but it's over. And that is as close as I understand to forgiveness. But I don't think we can get to forgiveness. I think we skip over the hard part, which is the apology part, which is the reckoning part, which is the accountability part. And I think that kind of forgiveness feels hollow to me, and it doesn't feel real to me, and it feels like it's forced. And about my father, all I can describe to you is it's over. He's gone. It's done. I lived in that paradigm of me being a victim to her, his perpetrator for 60 years. And I have to tell you, I'm not in that paradigm anymore. And I don't know where I am. I walk around every day going, okay, those were like, those were the borders of the frame of my life. Like I knew who I was. I've been working to end violence against women every day of my life for 12 hours a day. I've written about it. I've, and now, I have other interests. <laughs> and not that I don't care, and not that I'm not committed to that for the rest of my life, but suddenly I feel like the world's, world's gone, whew, it's opened up. And I want to write about things I've never wanted to write about. And I want to think about things. And I, I love nature, and I want to bow down to nature, and I want to hug trees every minute. Like something has been born in me. And um, in that sense, you can call that forgiveness, you can call that release, you can call that story over. <laughs> Man in the audio talked about covenant. What's the nature of this covenant? Um, my father says during the book that um, when he incested me, um, we made a covenant. Of course, he made the covenant. I, wasn't, I was five years old. I wasn't really up for the covenant. Um, but that we, we had this bond. We had this agreement that I was his and he was mine. And that covenant actually swallowed my life to some degree because I felt so possessed by it, you know, and occupied by it. So at the end of the book, he says, I free you from the covenant. I free you from this curse, essentially, that I put upon you. And um, that's what that means. Uh, what if you want or need an apology from someone who's alive? I feel like it'd be a lot easier if they were dead and then I could, you know, do this imagining that it seems a lot harder when you have to continue to interact with somebody and have a relationship with somebody. And I'm just wondering if mm. you think you can go through a similar process with somebody who's living and have it have that freeing experience. It's a very good question. Uh, a journalist in London wrote that she thinks every victim should send this to their perpetrator anonymously, and I thought that was a brilliant idea, and I would strongly suggest it just to get the wheels moving. But what I would say is this, if you believe that person is open to an apology and would want to go on the journey of the apology, I would suggest that you send in the book and you say to them, are you open to working with your clergy, with a therapist, with somebody who would take you through a journey where you could do a reckoning 
and a self-interrogation and self-investigation to make the kind of apology I need. And if you are, I would be willing to receive that and see if they're willing. And all you can ask, do is ask. I, I would do it with a partner who's with you and supporting you in doing it, so you protect yourself and you always have an ally in that process. Um, you know, it's very funny. Um, when I was in fifth grade, I got um, stripped by two boys in my class, three boys in my class in front of the whole school. And it was a really horrible experience, and my father blamed it on me. And um, I was really obsessed with this for a long time. It was a, it was a profoundly humiliating experience. And when I wrote uh, the vagina monologues, I... Um, because the, 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 the monologues are based on interviews, but they're all fictional literary pieces. And I created this character called Andy Lefkoff, who was a combination of the two names of the boys who had stripped me. And about five years after the play was playing off-Broadway, I got a letter from one of them. And he said, I think you were talking about me. And I did a terrible thing to you and I've been haunted by it my whole life, and I want to apologize, and he went into a deep apology. And it was so profound, and I let it go. And the other night, I was doing a reading, and his wife came up to me, and she said, I know what my husband did to you, and he really wanted to come tonight, but he's still ashamed to see you. And I said, tell him he doesn't have to be ashamed anymore. He apologized, it's done. And I could tell her whole face just relaxed because she was carrying that. She, as a woman, was carrying that burden, do you know? So I think when we offer people the ability to do authentic apologies, we relieve them, we relieve their families, relieve all the people around them who are carrying the burdens of their bad deeds. I don't think any of us get out of this world without the shame, blame, guilt of terrible things we've done. And the the catalyst for making the apology is to free yourself from the poisons and the contaminants that are destroying your life. Uh, did you expect or receive an apology from your mother? I did. Um, my mother um, died nine years ago during my chemotherapy. It was a very, very bizarre experience. Um, I was really sick and she died. But before she died, um, I went and I had a very profoundly difficult meeting with her years before that where I told her everything my father had done to me. And um, it was very, probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And she at first, would, first of course she acknowledged all the beatings because she was there and in some ways supported them. You know, she was kind of um, a bit of a, 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 an enabler of them. And at first she tried to deny the sexual violence and then later called me up th that same night at four in the morning and she said, all the signs were there. You had infections, you had nightmares every night, your personality completely changed, you were suicidal. Of course, this happened. And she told me something very bizarre that before my father died, a few days before he died, he told her um, to take me out of any will he had and not to leave me any money. And he said, and furthermore, if she ever tells you anything about me, it's a lie. And my mother said, had he not said that, she wouldn't have believed me. So um, we then began to engage in a process of really talking to each other and me sharing how abandoned and betrayed I felt by her and how, how painful it was. And she told me at a certain point, and I, 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 I really feel this in my 
heart how painful it was that she had been a very poor woman who had grown up in the Midwest and my father was a very charming, wealthy, um, you know, middle class, but upper middle class executive and, and he was her path out of poverty. And she had three children and she said, where was I gonna go with three children? And she said, to be honest, I sacrificed you. I sacrificed you. And as painful as those words were to hear, I knew they were the truth. And in that moment, again, I released my mother because she told me the truth. And um, before she died, we had a beautiful, beautiful coming together, very beautiful. And again, I released her. And I think she released me. And I think we, she left this world and left me in a very good way. Hi, just a quick question. Um, when did your mom know about your situation? Not until I was older, much older. How I mean, old? what she said is that she didn't know, but she said, I, ha I should have known because all the signs were, and we don't know what people know, and they, what is denial, right? What is denial? We see things in front of us all the time. Do we all know that there are children in cages at the border? Do we know that they are holding 1,500 boys, undocumented beautiful boys in an old Walmart in Brownsville, Texas, where they're being treated worse than products? Do we know this? It's all in front of us, but what do we choose to see? What do we choose to see as people, as culture, as individuals? And so I, I, I know people live in families where they know bad things are going on, but they don't ever talk about it. And they don't want to talk about it because there will be consequences. We don't talk about this current predator-in-chief because so many people around him, whether it's the Republican Party, they're invested in their own power, in their own struggles. They don't see and they don't talk. You know, what, what motivates us to see and, and relinquish our own safety and security to, for the benefit of other people? It's a huge question. Breaking my heart somewhat, but you're mending it at the same time. Um, this room should be filled with men. Mm -hmm. The phrase that struck me was the tyranny of misogyny, and it's the tyranny over men as well as, as women. And um, I hope there's ways that can be devised either in schools or some way that more men hear your message? Well, one way would be for you as a man to get your man friends to do a book group with the book and to come together and talk about what the issues in the book provoke. Because I think men talking about this together would be a very profound thing. And we're going to do a play of it. Um, we're gonna, it's going to be a theatrical event. But I really do believe that in our smaller communities, we need to be talking, men need to be talking to each other about these issues and what's coming up. Because my experience now, only in the last few weeks with this book, is that men are desperate to talk. And they want to be figuring out a way to get out of this. And I, I, I'm going to believe the best about men until I can't, do you know? I, and what you said about the tyranny of patriarchy, you know, there's a story in the book about my father. And, you know, as I said, I conjured a lot of this. But one morning, I, my father woke me up literally when I was writing this book at 4 o'clock in the morning, and he said, go to, go to your office, I want to tell you this story. And, and literally, that's how this book happened. He would literally wake me up, he would push me, he was just like, all right, I want to tell you this. And, he, and I went to the office and he told me this story, that when he was a little boy, um, he found this baby bird on the ground, and he picked up the baby bird, and he held the baby bird in his hands, and he said he felt like he had the whole universe in his hands. And he was just in wonder and awe. And you know, wonder and awe um, 
are such a form of generosity, right? You have to be vulnerable to feel, you have to open yourself to the cosmos to feel that. And he was in this incredible state of rapture. And his mother found him, his perfect, her perfect adored boy, and she screamed, and what are you doing, you idiot? You're, it's a dirty bird, and she smacked the bird, and the bird fell on the ground, and it died. And she wouldn't let my father touch the bird. And she wouldn't let my father cry. And I swear to you, those moments determine our life. They determine whether we're going to feel when we're lying atop a woman who's saying no, whether we're going to hear her or feel how she doesn't want something because either we've cut off our hearts or we haven't cut off our hearts. So I think how we bring up our boys to be tender, to be open, to be affectionate, to be loving, to be confused, to be doubtful, to not know everything, right? To be in wonder. Just our boys to be in wonder and to let them have wonder will determine so much of the men they get to be. Thank you for bringing that up and saying that. That was Eve Ensler. Her latest book is The Apology. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.